The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. This morning we're going to continue in a series that we started several weeks ago simply entitled Shattered. Uh, the reality is we, we live in a shattered world. Uh, we live with shattered individuals. And yet Jesus Christ truly is the great physician. He's the almighty healer. And we're looking at how to survive in this shattered and broken world. And, and today, we're going to talk specifically about how to respond when we have been betrayed. Anybody in this room ever been betrayed before? Um, maybe someone you thought was your friend lied about you and you were betrayed. Maybe someone who you thought was your friend begin to gossip behind your back and you're betrayed. Maybe a relative or a co-worker begins to slander you and, and you felt betrayed. And, and that's what we're going to speak into here a little bit today. Uh, Galatians chapter number 2 verse 20, not our text, but it's kind of been a theme verse of this series. The Bible says, I... I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Notice this. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. If you're used to writing in your Bible, I want you to underline that little phrase here. Christ liveth in me. So what does it look like when Christ is living his life through me in my trials? What does it look like when Christ is living his life through me in my hardships? What does it look like when Christ is living his life through me when I've been burdened and burned and betrayed? And that's what we're going to unpack here a little bit today. And I think what we're going to find, the answer here in Luke chapter number 22, what it looks like is very much... What Jesus looked like when he was being betrayed. And so really the question we're going to ask ourselves today is this. How did Jesus respond when he was betrayed? How did Jesus react when he was literally stabbed in the back? And in many ways that is what Christ wants to do through us when we're stabbed in the back. When we are betrayed. I'm going to give you some background and then we'll dive into our passage. Jesus has spent three years with his disciples. He has poured his life into them. He has done miracles on their behalf. He has blessed them. He has engaged them. He has encouraged them and truly enriched their lives. And for 36 months, Jesus has literally poured everything he has into these individuals, including one by the name of Judas. Now, it's interesting to me as you read through the names of the disciples, many of those names continue to be used today. Some of the disciples, many of you know individuals by the name of John. We, in, even in our culture, we continue to name our children after some of these disciples. Uh, some of you have friends or maybe even children named Matthew. Because many of these disciples have a good testimony. And even in our culture, we're used to naming our children after them. I, for one, have never met a little Judas. <laughs> 
We don't tend to name our children Judas. Why? Because down through the ages, he is known as the one who betrayed our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is known as the one that, you know, colloquially speaking, stabbed Jesus Christ in the back. Judas has just betrayed Jesus and his followers to the enemy for a little money, for some silver. And now Judas is on his way to this garden where he's literally going to sell them out. And what we're going to read in a moment is two different responses to this betrayal. We're going to see how two individuals responded when this took place. And what we're going to focus on toward the end of the message is specifically how Jesus Christ responded and how he wants to respond through you toward those who have betrayed you, toward those who have gossiped about you, toward those who have slandered you, and toward those who have betrayed you. Inside your service program, you'll find an outline that you can use to follow along through the message here this morning. I hope it'll be a help to you as we study the Word of God together here today. If you are physically able, I'd like to invite you to stand as we read our text. We're going to start with Luke chapter number 22, verse number 50. I'm going to continue more passages throughout our study, but let's just start in the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 22. We'll read verse 50 and verse 51. So we gave you the background which led us to this point in verse 50. And one of them, as we're going to see here in the rest of our service as we dive into the text, one of them was a disciple, smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. So here's this disciple and they're coming for him and he's just going to, he goes for the head, try to chop him off and he gets the ear, verse 51. And Jesus answered and said here to this disciple, Suffer ye thus far. Literally, if we were to turn it in modern terms, Jesus was saying, enough of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. This morning I want to speak on the subject of how to respond literally when we have been Betrayed. How do we respond when we've been stabbed in the back? How do we respond when literally we've been sold out, sent down the river, thrown under the bus? Whatever phrase you want to use. How does Christ want to respond through me toward those individuals? Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll dive here into our text. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we love you. And I pray, Lord, for the individuals here this morning who have been betrayed. Maybe by a family member, by a co-worker, by a boss, by a spouse. And Lord, they're really reeling inside. They don't know how to respond. And I'm praying that you would give them unbelievable grace. I pray that the grace of Jesus Christ and the strength of Christ would be lived out through them toward those individuals. And I pray that you would use your word to minister grace to each and every one of us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. 
When I was in college, I had several college buddies and, and uh, we enjoyed getting together and doing different things and going different places. And, and on one particular occasion, uh, a bunch of my friends got together and we were going to head out and we were going to go, I forget exactly where we were heading, maybe to the beach or something like that, down to Disneyland or Universal Studios. And so we're in college and uh, there was enough of us where we had to take two vehicles. And so I decided to take my vehicle and some of my friends jumped in my car. And, and then the other vehicle, some of you know, uh, Jose Miano, he took the other vehicle and uh, we were going to make our way together as we made our way down uh, south there. It was about to be about an hour drive and as college students can sometimes do and I'm going to be transparent to you, be entirely honest, I was probably driving a little speedier uh, than I should have been at that time and I was zipping down the highway and uh, as I was zipping down there all of a sudden as you can imagine... Uh, there in that little corner around the little bend, you know how they're usually doing, you know. There was that police officer, and I zipped right by. Oh, man, my heart just sank. Sure enough, that guy followed in behind me, and I was just like, oh, man, I, I got it, you know, and pulled in behind me, and he walked up to me and kind of, you know, did their little thing and then made, took my uh, driver's license back to his vehicle and was standing back by his vehicle when all of a sudden, very slowly, I noticed Jose, <laughs> in his vehicle driving by me just laughing hysterically at me Wah! you know and some of you who know him you know how he could get you know belly laugh just just thought it was the funniest thing in the world and I'm just sitting there like man I wish he'd get it you know and as I'm thinking that in my heart I just oh I was so frustrated and it was my own fault and, and I realized it and I remember just thinking man I wish, he, I wish he'd get what he's, what's coming to him you know I took my ticket with joy <laughs> Did not complain. <laughs> Took it, kind of went on our way. I'm driving down the road, you know, being much more careful. Driving, you know, way below the speed limit now at this time, you know, and just trying to be extra careful on things. And sure enough, in the distance, <laughs> as I'm driving down the road, I see a car that looks familiar. <laughs> looks a lot like Jose's car. Sure enough, down the road, another police officer had pulled him over. So you say, what did you do? Did you offer him grace? No, I rolled down my window. And as I'm going by, I'm like, ah, you got what's coming to him. You know, I just, it was, it was the greatest, it's just so sweet. It felt so good, you know. And, and if we were to be honest, if we were to be honest, when someone gets what's coming to them, it kind of makes us feel good inside, doesn't it? <laughs> However, the Bible repeatedly again and again and again warns us from taking matters into our own hands. You see, my friends, bitterness is bondage. Resentment is a prison. It's like a cancer that will literally destroy you from the inside out. So how do we get free from this bitterness? Today we're going to look at God's word and see how to escape from the prison of bitterness and resentment. So here's our theme. By God's grace, this is going to frame everything else we talk about today. By God's grace, you and I, we together, can resist revenge. By the grace of God working in you and his strength working through you, you can resist the revenge that you desire to pour out on that so-called friend that betrayed you. 
That coworker, that boss that threw you under the bus. By God's grace, we can resist revenge. This morning, we're going to look at these two ways, two individuals that responded very differently toward this betrayal. Let's go to a synoptic gospel for those of you who understand what I'm saying. Oftentimes, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're what are referred to as synoptic gospels. They give us the same story from different perspectives. And so maybe in one, Matthew gave us a perspective, and then in another, Luke would give us a different perspective. And so we come to John chapter number 18, and we're going to read the exact same passage we just read a moment ago, but we are going to see it from John's perspective here. And so we see from John chapter number 18, I think they're going to throw this up on the on the screen, here. John chapter number 18 and verse number 10. Same thing we read a moment ago, but this is now from John's perspective. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it. So all of a sudden, Judas is coming with these soldiers. Judas is coming with those that uh, are now going to take him captive. He's betrayed him for the silver. Peter sees the soldiers coming. They're ready to take Jesus and handcuffs, I guess you could say, chains of sorts. And literally, Peter, being the kind of hot-tempered guy that he was, he pulled out his sword, and he was ready for a fight. And I, I believe with every ounce of my being that Peter was thinking to himself, this is it. It's going down right here, right now. And he says, I'm going to be ready for it. He pulls out his sword. And I believe with all my heart, he's he's just going to take out anybody he can. Anybody who gets in his way, he is going to take them out. I believe it's right here. It says, and he says he uh, smote the high priest's servant. So the high priest was there with some of the soldiers. He had his servant. His name was Malchus, we see, cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And so I'm sure the servant kind of stepped out in front. He was going to kind of be the bodyguard there. And Peter comes along. Long, he's ready to take off Malchus's head. I mean, he's had it. This is the end. They've been pushing him too far. He takes that sword. He goes to swing. And I'm sure Malchus wasn't just going to let him have a free shot. And he does his best to kind of duck around that sword. And Peter gets him right in the side of the head, chops off his ear. And very quickly, we're going to see in a moment how Jesus responds. <sighs> Peter's had it. He's put up with it. They've been pushing him to the limit. And now it's time to fight. And which leads us here to what we're going to look at as our first response that often we have. And that is retaliation is the normal response. Retaliation is the normal response. When we've been slandered. When we've been gossiped against. When we've been thrown under the bus and stabbed in the back. When... Use whatever phrase you want to use, but when we've been betrayed, retaliation is often the normal response. Retaliation always asks this question. How can I hurt this person? Retaliation asks that every time. How can I hurt? How can I inflict pain? How can I give them what they're What's coming to them? And so we seek to plan our revenge. 
We seek to plan our retribution. Some of us are very demonstrative in the way we want to take revenge. We're very loud. We're very stubborn. We're, we're going to make it known. Other of us are a little different. Our personalities, maybe you're more passive-aggressive. And on the surface, you can come across like you've got it all under control. And on the surface, you feel kind. But stewing underneath, you're, you're plotting revenge. You're, you, you take it from more a, a passive-aggressive. And so whenever you have the opportunity, you just kind of pass aggressively slip a little scathing remark in there and, and just in that little tone and sometimes people don't know what, what do they mean by that and what were they saying and it was just it was just that anger and that bitterness and, and that resentment that slowly begins to seep out like a poison and, and it comes across more passive aggressive but whatever the case it's retaliation it's meant to wound you see according to the scriptures The Bible says in Romans chapter number 12, verse 19, it is written, vengeance or revenge is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. When we've been betrayed, when we've been slandered and gossiped, stabbed in the back and thrown under the bus, oftentimes the normal response is retaliation, retribution, and revenge. But I want you to see something here. Revenge often assassinates its own executioner. And this is why it's so dangerous. This is why the word of God warns us against it. That's why when you begin to plan revenge, somebody once said, start by digging two graves. One for your enemy and one for yourself. Revenge is normal in our society. I think they're going to throw this up on the screens, but um, the paradox of revenge is that it makes people dependent upon those who have harmed them. If you're seeking revenge and planning revenge and retribution, your state, your emotional state, is dependent upon them. Why? You believe that their release from pain, they believe their release from pain, will only come when their tormentors suffer. And can I say to you today, there is no relief just because a tormentor suffers. Don't keep your emotional state dependent upon the state of someone else. By the grace of God, we can resist revenge. Now, before I move into our next thought here, and I want to, what we're going to talk about, I do need to caveat this a little bit by, by... bringing some words of discernment and wisdom to this conversation. And that is simply this. If you, my friend, are in a physically abusive situation, you need to separate yourself from that environment before you do anything else, all right? This is very important. It is extremely vital that you are not enabling more abuse. The situation, really, our spirit should always be to help and not wound someone else. But sometimes the best way we can help another individual is by graciously and very sensitively removing ourselves from a situation so that more abuse is not enabled. But with that being said, and that being a caveat, I want you to notice now verse number 51. We saw how Peter responded. It's how so often we respond. We respond with retribution. We respond with a spirit of retaliation. But notice what Jesus does. Verse 51. 
And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. Literally, enough of this, Peter. Suffer, it means to, 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 to endure. He literally says, just endure it. Suffer it. Deal with it. This is how Christ engages these types of situations. When Peter was really ready to retaliate, when Peter was ready for retribution, what Jesus' response was entirely opposite. It was very countercultural. It's not what we would have imagined he would have done. But he says, enough of this. Stop it. Verse 51. And he, Jesus, touched mouth of seer and healed him. Imagine everything going quiet. Malchus is trying to reach for his ears, blood all over his face. Jesus very sternly rebukes Peter and says, Enough. Retaliation's not the answer. Retribution's not how we deal with this. And he walks over to his tormentors, the one that at a moment will take him to his cross. He reaches down. And with the love that only a Savior could offer. Touches his ear. And he's healed. And I'm sure everybody standing around was thinking to themselves, what just happened? That's not normal. That was, that was not how Peter and the other disciples were thinking this thing was going to happen. Which leads us to our next thought this morning, and that is this. While retaliation is the normal response, restoration is the needed response. Restoration is the needed response. You say, how do I know when the grace of God is working through me? How do I know when Christ is living his life through me? Well, one of the ways you know whether or not Jesus Christ is living his life through you in your trials, one of the ways you know whether or not Jesus Christ is living his life through you when you're in pain and when you're in heartache is how do you respond to betrayal? Because when it's you in the flesh just trying to be a good Christian, you know how you're going to respond? Even as a good Christian, you're going to retaliate. Even me as a good Christian, revenge, retribution, if nothing else, at least some passive aggressiveness. See, when Christ is living through us and we're surrendering and allowing his spirit and his grace to do what we can't do on our own, he responds to betrayal with restoration. You see, while retaliation asks the question, how can I hurt this person? Restoration asks the question, how can I help this person? It's an entirely different paradigm. 
Jesus Christ did not just come to kind of make you a little better than you were. He came to totally revolutionize the way you see your world, the way you see people around you. He doesn't want to just improve you. He wants to literally transform you. He wants to change your heart from the inside out. And where one would used to ask themselves, how did I hurt this person? Jesus threw you through with his grace and with his strength. He wants you to ask, how can I help this person? This person has betrayed me. This person that slandered me. Person that's gossiped against me and is trying to make my life miserable. Naturally, we want to ask ourselves, how can I get even? How can I get back? And Jesus says, enough of that. It's not how we handle things. That's not how I work. When Christ is living through us, The question is turned upside down and now we are asking our tormentors and those who have persecuted us and those who have hurt us and betrayed us and now the question is, God, how can I help them? What what is it that you want to do through me for them? God, how do you want to bless them through me? And Jesus saw an opportunity to heal. He saw an opportunity to restore. He saw an opportunity to make things better. This is why the Bible admonishes us in Matthew 5.44. But I say unto you, love your enemies. That's pretty tough. If it just stopped there, we'd all be in trouble. But it goes on. Bless them that curse you. Love is something you do with your heart. It's something you do with your spirit. Bless them that curse you. Blessing is something you do with your mouth, your words. Do good to them that hate you. Do good is something you do with your actions, with your behaviors. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And we could say betray you. You say, what's Jesus teaching us here? He's saying that that person who's betrayed you. That person who stabbed you in the back. That person who's thrown you under the bus and sent you down the river. The person that's slandering and gossiping and making your life miserable. Your enemy, I want you to do everything you can emotionally to be a blessing to them. I want you to do everything you can with your words to bless them while they're cursing you. I want you to do good to them. I want you to look for opportunities to serve them with, their, with your behaviors. And not even just that spiritually, I want you to pray for them. And I would encourage you to pray until... It stops hurting you to pray for them. There is no revenge so complete as forgiveness. I love the way Proverbs chapter number 25, 21 says it. If you've got it there in your notes, it might be on the screens. 
if thine enemy, okay, here's somebody who's betrayed you. This is somebody who has slandered you. This is somebody who has literally thrown you under the bus. They are out to make your life miserable. This isn't an accidental thing. This is not just a misstep. This person doesn't like you. This person hates you. This might be a person you've tried to love. It's somebody you've tried to, tried to serve. And the Bible says, if thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. For thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head, and the Lord shall reward thee. Now, we're going to go on a little Bible lesson here for just a moment, all right? Um, We Westerners, if I can call us that, have a particular paradigm And the way our paradigm works is we read things in the Bible and it's like we have cultural lenses on and we see these biblical texts through our cultural lenses, our cultural paradigms. And so we read something like this and we're like, yeah, coals of burning hot coals of lava. We're going to pour, I'm going to do good for that. I'll give them a sandwich because it'll make their life miserable. (laughs) And that's how we read this text. We're wearing our Western lens. It's, it's not horrible. It's, it's I mean, I, but it, it's like this passive aggressiveness. <laughs> like we're going to do them evil, but, you know, we got we to gotta pat them on the back and then God's going to get them with a, a bolt of lightning. Um, we Westerners must break through some of our traditions if we're able to come to deep understanding of God of the Bible and the full beautiful pictures like the one we're going to see just in a moment. As a Bible teaching church. This is very important. I'm I'm on a one minute rabbit trail. It is very important that we be exegetical in our approach to biblical interpretation. That is, we have to let the Bible interpret itself for us rather than being eisegetical. These are seminary terms that I learned way back when. Eisegetical means when we insert our own meanings, when we insert our own interpretations into the text. So there are some people as they read the Bible, it's exegetical. They let the culture, they let the times, they let the authors, they let the context literally exit, exegete out of the passage and give them meaning. And other people take passages and they insert their own meaning into the passages. Exegeting scripture and biblical interpretation is good. Isogeting scripture and inserting our own meaning into it is bad. Good, bad. Okay. This is a passage that often gets eisegesis. Where people insert their own paradigms and cultural perspectives into a text and think they know what it means. And so just as a way of a little Bible lesson... We've really got to step back and and really understand the cultural traditions of people in ancient biblical times to even understand what this is even talking about. Because when we read it, we get one mental picture in our head. I'm going to smile at them and then all these burning coals of lava are going to come down on them. (laughs) That's our picture. When people would have read this, this was originally from Proverbs... People in ancient biblical times would have had a very different perspective of what was being talked about in this particular passage. Um, In Bible lands, almost everything, and maybe if you've seen some cultural pictures from the Middle East and things, back in Bible days, almost everything was carried on the head in large basins. 
ladies, as they would make their way to the wells, would hold their water pots and they would literally hold them on their heads as they would make their way to the well. Uh, oftentimes, if they were bringing back food from, from gleaning there in the, uh, at, at the pasture, or maybe gleaning some different foods, they would have a large basket, and they would carry those baskets almost all the time. In fact, in ancient biblical times, some people became so skilled at this, they could literally hold uh, large amounts of stuff on their heads, literally get it without even holding it with their hands. I mean, it was, it was quite the ordeal, uh, just, just how their muscles were developing things, they would hold these. And, and oftentimes, in ancient biblical times, there would be a fire in the house. And this fire was constantly running because, of course, without the aid of electricity, they would need this fire to just keep the houses warm, to cook food throughout the day. For a lady, cooking dinner was not something they popped in the microwave five minutes before it was time to eat. I mean, cooking meals was literally an all-day ordeal. And so if your fire went out, that was a bad thing. And so often what they would do is they would take a basin of sorts, uh, literally kind of one of these basins that you would put on a fire full of burning coals, and if their fire went out, they would go to a neighbor and they would put that basin of coals from their head and they would take it over to a neighbor and that neighbor, if they were generous, would take some of that fire and would put that fire back into their basin. Literally, it was, a, it was a sign, it was a traditional sign of a lot of generosity. Giving more than they really deserved. They would then be able to use that for kick cooking as well as some warmth. And they just kept that thing burning literally day after day. If the neighbor was extremely generous... They would maybe heap the basin full of coals. They would add more coals to it in the process. Literally, it was a symbol of of the finest generosity. And so, with having a proper cultural context, a proper lens, let's read a synoptic passage from Proverbs 25 that we will find in Romans chapter number 12 where this passage is now spoken again. Notice what it says. Romans 12, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, Recompense... To no man, evil for evil. Okay, let's pause right there for a second. What we're seeing here, hey, don't recompense. Don't take revenge. Be careful of this thing. They betrayed you. Don't betray them back. It's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt the very thing you're trying to help. Therefore, he goes on to say, If thine enemy hunger, feed him. And if he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, what are, what are we doing when you, when you serve them and you give them drink and food? For in doing so, thou shalt heat coals of fire on his head. You will literally exert a symbol of the greatest sort of generosity that there is. You won't just give them food. You're not just doing good. You are lavishing them in generosity. And he says, be not overcome of evil. I love this. But overcome evil with good. Again and again and again throughout the scriptures, we're always pulled away from retaliation by the spirit and grace of God toward restoration. Rather than how can I hurt this person, we ask ourselves, 
God, give me the grace to help that person. How do you want me to love them? How do you want me to pray for them? How do you want me to serve them? How can I bless them? And in doing so, literally, you offer to them the finest symbol of generosity that there is. Can I remind you in closing that nothing that has been done to you is worse than what was done to Jesus? Nothing that has been done to you. Maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, the person who betrayed me is in this very room. They call themselves a Christian. They call themselves a child of God. Maybe it's a family member, a spouse. They went to a marriage altar. They, they promised. I thought if anybody had my back, and rather than having my back, they stabbed my back. And it's easy to allow a spirit of revenge and retribution begin to well up. But can I remind you today that nothing that has been done to you is worse than what was done to Jesus. I think it's amazing that Jesus helped us even while we were sinning against him. That he reached out to us and offered us the gospel when we were sinning against him. You say, I wasn't sinning against God. I was just kind of doing my own thing. I was sinning in this world. I was sinning doing this or sinning doing that. David recognized when he sinned, it was a sin unto the Lord. Psalms chapter number 51. And even while we were sinning against God, against him, on the cross, Jesus reached out and helped even those that were hurting him. And as he was dying on the cross, he literally was trying to restore. He was trying to help, encourage, and enrich the very individuals that were trying to destroy him. And I want to say to you, that the Spirit of Jesus Christ now lives in you. The same Spirit that healed Malchus's ears. The same Spirit that says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. That same Spirit lives in you if you are a child of Jesus Christ. And his spirit wants to bring restoration. His spirit wants to bring healing to the very individuals that you're having a hard time even being around. While it's natural to retaliate, it's supernatural to want to restore. You see, that is what the spirit of Christ demonstrated again and again and again, and again. See, we like the stories where Jesus helped the little children. And we like the stories where Jesus helped the little sick people. And we like the stories where Jesus helped those who didn't deserve it and the marginalized, and, and he did. But it's amazing when we see a picture of Jesus helping the very ones who are out to get him. Letting revenge go to the Father. Letting the Father take care of that. 
I have a responsibility to submit, to yield, and to surrender to what the Spirit of Christ wants to do through me. You say, what does the Spirit of Christ want to do through me? He wants to love your enemies through you. He wants you to bless them that curse you, do good to them that despitefully use you, and pray for them. That How do I know if the grace and strength of God is working through my life? Here's how you'll know. It looks like what Jesus looked like when he was going through it. That's how you'll know whether what you have is authentic or just you trying to do the best you can on your own. When Jesus is in control, the response looks like Jesus. Can I, can I, I want you to kind of imagine this for a moment. Think about this. Imagine being completely liberated from all anger, all bitterness, and all resentment. Some of you, all, your conversation always goes back to that person who's just making your life miserable or the people who are making your life miserable. It is beginning to frame the entire way you see your world. And, and I'm not trying to put a damper on things, but God has something better for you. He doesn't, he doesn't desire that you would live a life tainted by that anger and that bitterness and that resentment. He, wants, he doesn't want you to just stop complaining. That we're not talking about just stop, just stop it. Buck it up. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about just yielding to the Spirit of Christ and let Him change you. That's what He wants to do. He's not trying to make you better. He just wants to transform you from the inside out. He wants it to where all of a sudden you can be what Jesus was. And you can respond as Jesus responds. I'm not telling you to buck it up. I'm not telling you to try harder. I'm just telling you to surrender and say, Christ, I can't. It's ridiculous. My boss is a jerk. My coworkers stink. My relatives are, uh. I'm not telling you to, well, just back it up, man. Don't complain. Don't be. I'm not telling you. I'm just saying, yield to Christ and say, Christ, obviously what I am is not what, what this situation needs. And so, Christ, what this situation needs is you living through me. I need you. And with a spirit of surrender and a spirit of just consecration and yieldness, say, God, let, let, the, let the planning for revenge and the complaining and the bitterness, let it be a psychological trigger that reminds you how much you need Jesus and how much you need his transforming grace. Let it, let it be a reminder to your psyche that you need something more than just willpower. And you need something more than just dedication and character and ugh, just buck it up. You need the grace, the rescuing grace of Jesus. That has, it's the only thing that can transform the heart from the inside out. You don't just need a better heart, you need a transformed heart. And you can't do that and I can't do that. And this church can't do it. And no religious institution can do it. Jesus does it. And so run to the presence of Jesus. Bask in his presence. Fall down at his feet and say, God, I can't. That person who hurt me, that person who betrayed me, there's nothing in me that can respond right to those individuals. But God, I know you want to love them through me and I don't want to. But God, if you want to do it through me, I surrender. I yield my life as an instrument for your glory. And I'll allow you to live your life through me. What would keep you today from the opportunity to embrace his grace?
I leave you with that. Your hope is not more discipline. Your hope is not, well, I just got to improve a little bit more. You, try it, go on, try it for the next decade. It's, it, it, you'll, you'll be okay for a couple weeks and then you'll fail again. It's just, it, there's no hope in that. The hope is in Jesus, running to his feet, to his presence, toward his grace, and recognizing he's the only one who can rescue your heart because that's what needs changing, not your behavior. When your heart changes, everything else takes care of itself. The behaviors change, the actions change, the responses change. But what needs help is your heart. And only Jesus changes the heart from the inside out. Would you embrace his grace? Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father.